Hey, welcome back to the Natural Curiosity Project. Before I get started with this episode, let me make a quick comment. A lot of the episodes that I publish in this program are based on ideas that were sent to me by listeners like you. Some of them are topics that they're curious about and want me to explore. Others are topics that people submit because they're important and they think they should be shared with others. Some of them, actually a lot of them, are teachers and professors and students who want to explore a topic for academic reasons. To everyone who has sent ideas, thank you. I started this podcast because my own interests are pretty broad. I've talked about bioluminescence, humor, 3D printing, social issues, the meaning of movie credits, wildlife sound, artificial intelligence, the history of writing letters, smart agriculture, climate change, tumbleweeds, and a lot of other things. As I've said many times, the only common thread among the episodes is curiosity. This is an interesting topic that you should be curious about, and knowing about it will make you a better person. In that sense, knowledge really is power. I was chatting with a friend of mine the other day, and he asked me what I was working on in terms of upcoming episodes. I told him, and he said something really interesting. He said, you know, Steve, I don't listen to your podcast because I'm curious. I listen to it because it makes me curious. I've come to realize that professionally being curious is a superpower. It gives me an edge over everybody else. Well, I didn't see that coming, but I'll take that as a challenge and keep doing what I do. Curiosity, our sixth sense. Okay, on to the episode. Years ago, when I used to scuba dive for a living, I discovered that there was one thing I loved doing more than anything else once my head sank below the surface. If I was on a pleasure dive, meaning I wasn't teaching other people how to dive, I would allow myself to slowly sink to the bottom, and once I got there, I'd lie down, careful not to squash anything that wasn't able to get out of my way. I'd put my hands under my chin with the second stage of the regulator, the part that goes in your mouth, resting on my hands, and just relax. I wouldn't be particularly deep, maybe 25 feet or so, because I wanted as much light as I could get. Most of the color disappears by the time you get much past 20 feet, except for the blues and violets and indigos. But if I was any shallower, the surge would toss me around like a rubber duck in a bathtub. Once I'd found a good spot and settled in, I'd get into doing what I was there to do in the first place. Making myself negatively buoyant by letting all the air out of my vest, I'd settle down and point my mask at the bottom. Within a minute or two, the show would begin. All the little critters that had been disturbed by my arrival would decide I wasn't a threat and would once again go about their various unknown businesses. Hermit crabs, tiny fish, nudibranchs, snails, decorator crabs, and gumboot chitons would all do their thing. Occasionally, a harbor seal or a California sea lion, or if I was really lucky, a sea otter would swim over to investigate. One evening, a colonial salp, go look it up, S-A-L-P, A colonial salp about 20 feet long drifted by right in front of me. It was just starting to get dark, one of my favorite times to dive, and I hit the salp colony with my light as it drifted by in the current. It lit up like a Japanese dragon. One morning, Dennis McCooey and I went to Otter Cove to dive, one of our favorite places. It isn't a very popular dive spot because it's rocky and you kind of have to know what you're doing to time your entry so that you don't get smashed on the wash rocks. Anyway, we made it out past the surf zone to calmer water, checked each other for safety, and went about the dive. I settled on the bottom to do my thing. Dennis headed off to do his. 
Now, for a diver who's comfortable in the water, there's nothing more relaxing, nothing more enjoyable than just letting the ocean have its way with you. The gentle swells passing overhead moved me back and forth ever so slightly, but for the most part, I was just heavy enough to stay in one place so that I could watch the show in front of my mask. It was so cool. It was like being rocked in a cradle. In fact, it was so much like being rocked in a cradle that I fell asleep. Yeah, you heard me right. I fell asleep lying on the floor of the ocean. The only reason I woke up was because Dennis came back at the end of his dive and tapped me on the shoulder, scared the crap out of me. I don't use a lot of air anyway, and being asleep, I used even less than usual. And of course, my regulator was jammed in my mouth because I was lying on it. So I wasn't in a lot of danger, but it was weird. Now, I tell you that story because this episode is about being in the moment. One of the things I've become hyper aware of is the degree to which people often aren't in the moment, especially in meetings and conferences and training sessions. As someone who teaches and speaks for a living, I'm tuned into this because my job is to share knowledge and insight in a way that people can actually use it. If I don't do my job well, the audience doesn't engage and retention of my information is low. When I'm in a classroom or I'm on stage at an event or giving a keynote, it's easy to gauge the audience's level of engagement. And now that I've been doing virtual sessions for a while, I find that it's pretty easy to pick up on the clues in the virtual environment as well. Where are their eyes pointing? Are they typing on a keyboard? Are they slow to respond when I ask a question? So two points here. It's my responsibility to be engaging, to do my job well enough that people don't get distracted and actually want to hear what I have to say. I take that really seriously. Second, if they don't hear what I or other presenters have to say, then the audience is letting other voices, distractions like social media and email and messaging and texting take over and pull them away from what would otherwise be an opportunity to learn from someone who has something to say, something that could be important to them. And that's sad because it's a missed opportunity. So being in the moment is important. It's a gift to yourself. It's also a deliberate choice. I do a lot of nature photography, and what I like to shoot more than anything else are the things that most people don't notice because they're small. Snow fleas, tardigrades, insects. I have all kinds of tricks I can do with my gear that allow me to fill the frame with an ant's eye. But to do this kind of work, I really have to be in the moment. First, I have to be at my subject's level. More often than not, that means lying down on the forest floor, or squatting in a swamp, or lying on the hot sand of the desert so that I'm face-to-face with my subject. In other words, uncomfortable. But here's the deal. I wouldn't want to shoot it any other way. Part of being a good nature photographer is capturing not only the subject, for example, a slug eating a little tiny mushroom under the overhang of a rotting log, for example, but also the world as the slug sees it. I could easily capture the slug and grab the mushroom and take them both back to the studio, plop them down on a piece of bark on a tabletop, and shoot them comfortably without getting muddy. That would provide content. But to lie down on the ground, smell the smells of the forest, and watch the slug go about his business of eating the mushroom as I position the camera, that's content and context. I often write pieces that I illustrate with my photographs. Without the experience of having been in the moment at the time I captured the shot, the writing would be sterile and uninviting. 
Why? Well, because another word for context is meaning. Think about that in terms of business. I can engage with the slug on my terms, or I can engage with the slug on his terms. How do you engage with your slugs? Okay, that's probably a bad choice of animals, but the message is the same. you got to be in the moment if you're going to provide both content and context. I've attended and taught photography workshops all over the place, and one of my favorites is an astrophotography class in Joshua Tree National Forest in Southern California. I love Joshua Tree because of the Joshua Trees. If Dr. Seuss were to design a tree, that's the tree he would design. Mother Nature was clearly on serious drugs that day. But it's more than the weird trees. The park is really remote. It isn't too heavily visited, and at night, it offers a view of the sky that is nothing less than breathtaking. We go off into the desert very late at night, set up our tripods, set the cameras for 30-second exposures or show, and we shoot. The Milky Way lights up the sky. Try to envision what we're seeing and feeling as we do this. We plan this workshop around the new moon, which means there is no moon. We pick Joshua Tree for another reason. There's no light pollution. The nearest town is, in fact, Joshua Tree, which is a blink-and-you-miss-it place, a kind of a wide spot in the road. We do get the occasional airplane overflight, but we can work around those. But the point is that we operate in total darkness other than the dim red cone of light that we get from our headlamps while we're setting up our gear. We're surrounded by the desert and Joshua trees and Ocotillo stalks that rattle and stacks of massive house-sized boulders and a lot of silence. There's no sound. On one trip, I remember hearing something down at my feet that sounded like a bird hopping around in the scrub, so I turned on my headlamp. It was a little scorpion skittering across the desert floor, its body scraping the ground. And I heard that. Why? Because I was in the moment. I wasn't distracted by anything except the immensity of the sky. I wasn't distracted by sound. I was in the moment doing nothing but photography. It's where my attention was focused, and the images prove it. One more example, and then I'll bring this episode to a close. As many of you know, I love the music of nature. I have a growing collection of field recorders and microphones that pretty much allow me to record anything I want, including underwater sounds, termites moving around in their nests, bees in a hive, or the wind making music when it blows across a barbed wire fence or in a high telephone line. In fact, I teach workshops occasionally about image and sound. They're called See and Listen. The participants are a combination of photographers and sound recordists. On day one of the workshop, we go into the field early in the morning before dawn. Photographers are not allowed to bring cameras. Sound recordists are not allowed to bring recording gear. And no one is allowed to bring mobile phones. Why? Because we're tuning the instrument. Look, there's an old expression that says, even a blind pig finds a truffle every now and again. I could take the workshop participants out with their gear starting on day one, and they'd probably come back with a few decent shots and recordings. But the captures wouldn't be deliberate. They'd be almost accidental. So instead, field notebooks and pencils are the only thing allowed. And once the day begins, no one talks. All we do is walk and observe and see and listen and take notes. 
The goal is to be in the environment, to take it all in. It's called field craft, and it's important. Let me interrupt myself with a business analogy. The world's most effective leaders have one thing in common. When they come into a leadership role, they never start by making changes. Instead, they sit quietly or walk around and make mental photographs and recordings. They take the time to get to know the environment in which they're working. Then they go back to their office, review their notes, digest what they saw and heard, and then and only then start to make changes. Why be a blind pig? These leaders act based on insights that they take the time to deliberately create. And so it is with the see and listen workshops. The entire first day is about insight. Don't talk. Listen. What do you see? What do you hear? What do you smell? How does the dirt feel in your fingers? How does it taste if you're brave enough? What behavioral adjacencies do you see? If one thing happens, does it trigger something else? Are events that you observe tied to a particular time or a position of the sun or a sequence of events? Are there insects about? Put your ear to the ground or against a tree. What do you hear? In other words, be in the moment. The information that the workshop participants gather goes into their notebooks. After lunch, we return to the conference facility where participants are asked to go off on their own and analyze what they wrote down. They're encouraged to think about insights that they gain that'll help them tomorrow when we go back out, this time with gear. An hour later, it's now mid-afternoon, we meet as a group outside and share those insights. And that night, we go out one more time. No gear just the elements of the night and its impact on the senses. More notes, and then early to bed. One of the main lessons that I preach during the workshop is that there's a difference between looking and seeing in the same way that there's a difference between hearing and listening. We all look and hear, but far less often we see and listen. Why? Because it requires deliberate action. We have to teach ourselves to make listening and seeing part of our normal, habitual behavior. Photographers do that. They instinctively see things that other people are oblivious to. Sound recordists are the same. They hear things that other people ignore, but it's a skill that they train themselves to do. So, a couple of final thoughts. By being in the moment, by making an effort to be aware of all the senses that are firing at any point in time, we're naturally drawn to ask more why questions than what questions. What do I mean by that? Well, here's the thing. What questions tend to reflect a single aspect of the environment in the present? What is that? It's a blackbird. But when we pay attention to the whole environment, we tend to ask more questions that reflect on the future. Why is that blackbird here? Why did she just stop singing? Here's an example. I went out with a group of experienced birders one time when I was just getting into birding. We were standing on the shore of a lake watching a big flotilla of water birds that were floating offshore. Suddenly, the entire raft of birds lifted off the water and flew away. Hey, they do that. But what I found odd was that at the precise moment that they all lifted off the water, Every one of the experienced birders I was with, and I mean every single one, 
brought their binoculars to their eyes, snapped their heads back, and looked up. Sure enough, a bald eagle was flying overhead. The water birds reacted to the presence of the predator by making themselves harder targets. And because the birders had taken the time to understand bird behavior, they knew that when those birds lifted, something caused it. That's the why. And ideally, it always follows the what. Now, if you still have a craving for one more adverb, I'll give you one more to think about. How? That's all about strategy. When we put these three words together, what, why, and how, we have a very compelling combination, especially when we're talking about running a business or making plans for the future or building toward an important decision. What we need to do is this. The reason we need to do it, the why, is this. And the way we're going to do it, the how, that's the strategy. For all you business people out there, my message with this episode is pretty simple. We're in a time when the number of simultaneous signals vying for our attention has never been higher. Email, texting, instant messaging, phone calls, Zoom calls, news alerts, other humans, social media, television, radio, books, magazines, podcasts, and plenty of other distractions all want our undivided, dedicated commitment. The result? It's hard to focus. How many times has this happened to you? Somebody sends you an email asking for a meeting time. You reply that you can meet any time this week except for Thursday from 1 to 3. And they turn around and send you an invitation for a meeting for Thursday from 1 to 3. Seriously? And it's not because they're stupid or they haven't yet figured out how to use a calendar. It's because they're distracted. They're what my friend Bob Dean calls skip and scan readers. They let their eyes flow over the text, but they don't actually internalize the message. Now, I recently got a new toy from Sabina that, as a writer, has changed the way I work. It's called the Remarkable Tablet, and it's amazing. It's designed for writers, and I mean that literally. It has a writing surface that has the same feel as a piece of paper, not the slippery glass feel that you have on most tablets. The stylus that comes with it looks like a pencil with a writing end that writes and an eraser end that erases. It doesn't search the web. It doesn't do email. It doesn't play music. It doesn't store pictures. What it does do is take my handwritten pages, convert them flawlessly to text, and then email them one way only to me so that I can incorporate them into a document. Now, I love this thing because it helps me focus on my work. Writing takes a lot of concentration, and by eliminating the distractions that are built into most tablets, I don't get distracted by the siren song of all those other things that want me to come out and play. Those distractions, they're bad for business. When we make the deliberate choice to be in the moment, to see, to listen, to give the other person the gift of our time and our attention, good things happen both personally and professionally. Make the choice. It'll do you good. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did... 
I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.